Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Christian, or as Ren says, Hogan. That's my last name. Uh, and I am a member here at Ridgetop Church. Uh, Robert couldn't be here today. He's actually doing a wedding for No Way, if y'all didn't know that, in College Station. So we're definitely going to have to like give them big hugs and celebrate whenever they get back. Um, but as I'm here, today we're going to continue going through the Ordinary Church uh, series of Acts 1 through 13. Something we've been looking at is how God is building his church, his kingdom, through very ordinary people and by very ordinary means. Um, we looked at, you know, the apostles were called uneducated, uh, ordinary men. Uh, and right at the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1, the disciples are waiting um, for the Holy Spirit to fall. And uh, Jesus gives them a command in Acts 1.8 that I'm sure hopefully y'all are familiar with. Uh, Acts 1.8, it says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Um, but I, like so far where we are in Acts, we haven't really seen the gospel move past Judea, which is like the Christian nation outside of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, most of it's been very like Israel-focused. But we've started to see that God's like stirring something. He's um, starting to do something having to do with Gentiles who are just considered like non-Jewish people. Um, so a few weeks ago, we talked about Philip, who was a very ordinary, not even apostle um, guy who was led by the Holy Spirit to talk to an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he sat and revealed through Isaiah that it was referring to Jesus. And the eunuch believed in Jesus to forgive his sins. Uh, and was baptized, and through that we like start to see some of this Acts 1-8 coming to fruition. The ends of the earth, hopefully the Ethiopian man brings the gospel with him back to Ethiopia. Um, similarly, the next week you see Saul, this like vicious attacker of the church who thought that he was defending uh, God's way by defending the Jewish laws, but actually found himself persecuting Jesus and was confronted by Jesus on the road. <clears throat> and it was said to Paul that he became Jesus' chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles. Um, and now we pick up in kind of a different situation. Peter is in a, a town called Joppa, which is uh, like a short way away from the city Caesarea, where our story is placed in, uh, and has just like experienced this miraculous raising of Tabitha from the dead where a lot of people have believed and now is it this guy, Simon the Tanner's house, uh, hopefully, you know, stewarding something going on in Joppa, Caesarea. So it seems like the, there's like a storm building. Uh, something is happening with the Gentiles and the Jewish people. Something's happening with this Acts 1-8 thing. Um, and the stage is set in Caesarea, which historically is, it's this port city on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea where like Jewish and Gentile worlds collide. So this is where we pick up in verse 1. Um, if, hopefully I'll still have your Bibles out. It's on page 864. Uh, we're going to jump around a little bit, but most of our time we're going to spend in Acts 10. So just keep a, keep a finger there. Um, verse 1, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his house. He gave alms generally, generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Uh, so let's think about Cornelius. He's a pretty, like, 
by modern standards, an incredible candidate for salvation. He's devout. Later it says that he's like respected by the people around him. Um, he prays continuously. He's like found praying at one of the common repetitious times of the day uh, for the Jewish people. He gives to the poor generously. Um, he fears God. So in all ways, this is like, and something should be like pointing us of, man, this, who's this like Cornelius Centurion guy? Um, where does this like tension come from later in the passage with Peter and these laws of like Jews can't associate with Gentiles? Um, but we also learn about Cornelius, that he is a centurion from Italy. Um, and I think taking just from like the historical Jewish perspective, the Jews really did not like the, the Romans. They didn't like foreigners. They very much separated themselves as a people. Um, they saw this land that they were in as rightfully theirs. Uh, so the occupying peoples, like this occupying military, him being a centurion meant that he was uh, like over a hundred different troops would make him in any like Jewish person's mind the like worst of the worst. Uh, someone to be hated. He's like the, I was thinking of it like a police officer that keeps you getting back, keeps you from getting back in your house once you've been evicted. Like, sure, maybe there's not a reason to hate him, but you kind of hate them anyway. Um, but Cornelius himself is sympathetic with the Jewish ways with his entire house. Uh, but something to note, he's called a God-fearer and not a Jew. So uh, he likely hasn't been circumcised. And this means, and gives some context for what we'll see later, that uh, the Jews couldn't associate with him. They couldn't go into ha his house. He's not supposed to go into their houses. Uh, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. Um, yet in the midst of this, we see something in verse 3, that an angel from the Lord comes and speaks to him. Uh, so it says in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision. An angel of the Lord come in uh, and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Um, so here's Cornelius, like quietly on his knees in his house, um, praying when he sees this like incredible bright, shining clothing angel in front of him that calls him by name and um, tells him something to do. And I think there's something to note already here that maybe the Jews wouldn't go in Cornelius's house, but God has listened to his prayers. He's, in some way, the word memorial is like it brings to God's remembrance Cornelius because of his prayer and his alms that he's been giving. Uh, and an angel literally is going inside of his house to meet him. So we're getting a prodding of kind of like God's perspective on this man, Cornelius. Um, and Cornelius does great things. <laughs> he's told that he should send men to Joppa to go get Peter. And I'm sure this made no sense to him. He doesn't have a context, but he obeys immediately. Uh, he finds these people in his household that with him are like devout god fears it seems, uh, and a soldier who's considered devout and sends them uh, to Peter immediately. Um, and as they're on the way to Peter, we pick up with like Peter's side of the story. So Peter also, something to note, is praying. Uh, the Holy Spirit seems to work when people are praying and they hear from him. Um, 
And as he's there, he's hungry, uh, thinking about food being made downstairs. Uh, I was actually just in India, and this was like a kind of a common experience where we would do a lot of the like praying or getting away or time to read on someone's rooftop. And downstairs, they would cook a meal, and you can like smell it coming up through the the roof and the floor. Um, so he's sitting there. He's feeling hungry. He's outside in the air, and God puts him in a trance. And he sees this chaotic vision of animals of all kinds coming down on a sheep. And we know from <laughs> uh, that since he thinks they're unclean, these are the unclean animals mentioned in uh, Leviticus is where a lot of the laws are given. So they're things that are like, to me, seem gross, like owls and bats and lizards, rats, rabbits, pigs, snakes, uh, on the sheet squirming around. Um, and in what seems to be the craziest moment of this, God tells him, uh, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter recognizes that it's God's voice. He says, Lord, in response, but also says no. He just flat out says no, and his reason is uh, because I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean, which is confusing. I won't dive into that a bit. Um, but it maybe he thinks he's like being tested by God, but um, in the Bible, this isn't the way God tests people. He doesn't like try to trick them or tempt them into like following something that isn't his word. Um, we don't really know exactly what's going through Peter's head here. Uh, but it says that three times there's like some kind of back and forth of him saying like, no, I won't do what you're saying. Instead, I need to be unclean or clean, which we're going to see is referencing these like old Leviticus laws. Um, so, I mean, at least in my perspective, he's got to be risking in some kind of way sinning against God by just saying no to what he's commanding. Um, is and in doing that, is preferring um, to be clean or unclean by refraining from eating. Um, and I, I think really the biggest insight we're going to get and why these convictions are strong for Peter and even what is like preventing the gospel going to the Gentiles is going to come from looking at those words. So clean and common, which, I mean, I learned about when I was prepping for this. So... Uh, Let's go to, we're going to look at it, one of the, the first places this is talked about to get some insight into what these words might mean, clean and common, or unclean and common. Um, so bear with me, there's a lot of like law talk, which isn't you know, the most appealing thing, but uh, let's go to Leviticus 10, 10 through 11, and it should be up on the screen behind me, I hope. Um, so this is given to Aaron the priest that they're supposed to teach the people. Um, this is you know, words from God. It says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. So you already get a bit of this. Common is, in some way, the opposite of what it means to be holy. Um, between the unclean and the clean. And you're to teach the people of Israel uh, all the, the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So I think what's helpful here is seeing that holy and common are like opposed words to each other. And the word holy in the Bible uh, it's a big word. <laughs> it means a lot. Um, it's a lot of times seen as like the core characteristic of who God is. So it encapsulates a lot, but most simply it means to be set apart. Um, it's talking about God. Sometimes people use the word transcendence, or another way to say it is like otherness. So there's things that God is that 
set him apart from everything else. God created the world. Um, God gives life to everything. He is pure. Um, yeah, he's good. His justice. There's a lot of these qualities wrapped up in um, God being holy, and in some ways, really simply, it is to say like God is who He is. Um, so simply, when it's saying like to be holy like God is to be in some way like Him or reflect those qualities He has. Uh, in a similar way, I feel like clean and unclean make a little more sense to us in like the modern um, times, but it it has to do with that like state of being like associated with God or in some way not associated. Um, and really the whole, we're going to be looking a lot at Leviticus because it's where all these laws are, but the, the whole Leviticus is, is concerned with how do people get into God's presence because God is holy. Um, when people went into God's presence and weren't in the state of ritual cleanliness or holiness, it was like a death sentence. So there was, had something to do with like associating God with something that wasn't like him, which I know is a long way removed from like animal laws and stuff, but we'll get there. <laughs> um, similarly, it wasn't like necessarily a, a sin or a wrong thing to be uh, in the state of being unclean. Uh, actually, people were like unclean very normally through like normal everyday means. I think that I have a list behind me of all across Leviticus, different things that would make you unclean. So like childbirth. Um, who's going to say that childbirth is like a bad thing or a sinful thing? Or uh, disease that's infectious, like leprosy. They would kind of like have to move away from the people in the temple. Um, unusually, unusual bodily discharges and ones related to like reproduction or sex. Touching a corpse. Of course, the eating unclean animals. And then contact with anything that's unclean to like again touching a corpse maybe even touching an unclean animal um and what we're supposed to see here is that these are these are symbols god is using to to like say these things aren't like me in some way um so for example what does god have to do with death um so to be in some way symbolically representing death and going into the author of life's presence is, like, doesn't jive. Um, I know there's a lot more questions there if y'all really want to know more about Levitical law. You can ask me after or ask Robert when he comes back. <laughs> um, but I think the main point here is understanding these, like, common unclean had to do with this, like, ritualistic purity, a way people saw themselves as being acceptable um, to God because of them like refraining from doing something or doing something. Um, so we also get insight into what Peter's thinking because uh, Peter in this argument with God is somehow seeing his cleanness or his holiness in regards to what he eats and doesn't eat. Um, this is pointing to a fact that he isn't completely uh, associating himself with Jesus who we know uh, is like the ultimate sacrifice that makes people clean. Um, that he is the only holy person that can bridge the gap between us and God. Um, but he's still looking at these like old, lawful Jewish ways so much that he's willing to like stubbornly refuse God. 
Um, but as we continue on in Acts, it goes from this vision about animals on a sheet and should I eat them or should I not? To the very end, Peter says, I've learned that I should call no person common or unclean. Uh, and that feels like a jump. So we're actually going to look at more Levitical laws <laughs> to see what this like association between animals and people are because I don't know about y'all, that's not like intuitive for my mind. Um, so it's actually talked about in a few places, Leviticus 11, four, or Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 20. And all of it, it has this phrase, be holy um, as God is holy. Or be set apart or distinct as God is distinct. We'll look at one of them, which should be up on the screen behind me. Yep. Uh, you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourself by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground. Those that I have set apart is unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Um, so there's a bit of this like distinction between animal and foods that has to do with how the Jewish people are distinct among peoples and among the nations. Um, a lot of the more like controversial commands in the Bible that you'll hear from like atheist debaters or um, you know various places uh, are also kind of like pointing at this separation of God's people from the like pagan cultures around them. Some of the things like getting tattoos or shaving the sides of your head, or you know you might have seen these on like TikTok slides, uh, planting two kinds of seed in a field. Uh, mating one kind of animal with another, wearing clothing woven of two kinds of material. So do you kind of like hear the this like separation being set apart that's happening? Um, that's like what a lot of these laws or symbols that are getting at. Um, and one quick reason is we see through Jewish history that they don't separate themselves from the nations around them and are tempted into witchcraft and child sacrifice and idolatry and all kinds of like Horrible, horrible things. Um, but a lot of this setting apart is so that they themselves will be like God. Um, unlike the Jewish law that says Gentiles shouldn't associate with Jews, uh, the laws actually have a lot of ways for Israel as a nation to be uh, a representative God to those people around them. But also following those laws means that they're not like affected by the nations around them. So it's kind of like a two-sided thing. Um, they were positioned in the ancient world to be representatives of God to all, all peoples. Um, you see this in Exodus. We're still jumping around the Old Testament. Sorry, guys. Uh, in Exodus, God makes a covenant with Moses. And in it, he says that uh, the Israel people are to be his treasured possessions. For all the earth is, is mine. Uh, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, so again, you see that word holy, so they're the set-apart nation. But it also says here that they're supposed to be priests or people that represent God to other people. So a lot of them being holy and set-apart was that they themselves would represent God to Gentiles across the world. To fill that Acts 1-8, we're sending, or we're being witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, but now the thing about Peter is him saying, I don't want to eat these unclean and clean animals. Is it, or like associate with a Gentile, is that helping 
the gospel spread to the ends of the earth, or is it becoming a hindrance? Um, so we're kind of back at the, like, maybe hopefully after all this, you're like, I get a little bit of what Peter's, Peter's saying. He's uh, in some way trying to, f- like, be clean or holy because of laws and not because of his identity with Jesus. Um, so back in Acts 10, it should be no surprise that God, when God responds to him, and the voice came to him a second time in verse 15. Uh, God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Um, so again, Levitical law is by sacrifice and washings that things are made clean or holy again. Uh, but here it's saying that God has made the like these animals, and we will later know people clean, is by God himself something greater than the Levitical laws that is, that is making these things clean. So this should be pointing us to Jesus. We should be thinking about Jesus here. Um, there's a, a time where a leper comes to Jesus and knelt before him and pleaded with Jesus, said, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean, and he touches him. So we see that Jesus has this power that he can make anyone clean that he wants to. And really, as we reflect on the gospel, we know that Jesus has become a sacrifice to wash people um, that doesn't have to be sacrificed over and over and over again like they would have to with animals, but has been sacrificed on a cross once. That he himself is holy, and because he's holy, can extend holiness to who he will. Um, so even this response, I hopefully you'll see, is really gracious to Peter, saying that it's God who has made these animal and people associated with them clean. Um, these old laws are just a shadow of the things that are to come and be fulfilled in Jesus. Um, but we also like still see something that after all of this, uh, Peter is confused. Uh, As we keep moving on, it says that he's perplexed and had to ponder the vision. Uh, And, you know, this is the the same Peter who is called the rock of the church and says that he has the keys to the kingdom and is able to bind and loosen and um, has a lot of, like, influence on the direction that the church goes. And in this moment, this moment of revelation, he's still kind of, like, wrestling with it, trying to understand um, and I actually think we can learn something here because confusion is pretty normal when you have like a deep held belief and it's confronted by something that is true from the Bible. Um, it's a like, I almost feel like it can be like a flag to us. Like, oh, this thing is really confusing. I think we should learn from what Peter did and he didn't just drop it, walk away, but he leaning into the confusion, still trying to like discern, figure out what God is doing um, and I think we see how gracious God is, that first he gives Peter a vision. Peter says, no, I won't do it. Uh, and then he responds to him and keeps like this back and forth with Peter. And then while Peter's still confused, he graciously sent Gentile people to his front door, literally knocking, asking him to open up. Um, and gives just this like gracious second opportunity and speaks through the Holy Spirit to Peter again, saying, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. So even there's a, like God's 
really kind to Peter and that he's giving him some freedom from conscience. He's not sure exactly what's going on. He's not sure what's like lawful or not, but God's told him to go and accompany them without hesitation. So he doesn't have to discern. He doesn't have to, he can just simply follow what the spirit does. And in doing so, he's taking like one more step in closeness or fellowship with Gentile people. Um, so he does. He goes down. He, I'm sure it was terrifying to look out your front door and see a guard and a soldier and a bunch of Gentile people. Um, but goes, welcomes them in. Um, and they, you know, tell him about Cornelius and that he's a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation and how an angel had sent them um, to come to Peter house, well, I guess Simon the Tanner's house, and to, to hear what Peter had to say. And he invited them in as guests. Um, and this is already a big deal because we know that it was against Jewish law from later. And this isn't like Bible law. I think it's more like Jewish traditional law. Um, but Peter's taking one more step of welcoming the Gentiles uh, in with him. Um, and, you know, we the guests we see will like stay the night. So they're not just coming in, they're like coming in and then also eating a meal with them and sleeping in their beds. This is like speaking of some like actual togetherness. Um, especially in Jewish culture to eat a meal together, to stay at someone's house was an intimate thing. Like kind of like it is for us where most of our meals we're eating with like family and friends and maybe, maybe like a coworker you're closely associated with. Uh, the people that are coming to stay the night are like the people you know the best that you're like, yeah, sure, come sleep here. Uh, but for Jewish people, it was even more like the the people that you're eating with, the people that are in your homes, those are like your people. Um, we see the importance when we're going through Acts 2 of the practice of eating together in people's homes. Um, so Peter is taking a big step towards like opening this door to the Gentiles just by letting these foreign people into his house, but he's he's not, like, all the way there yet, <laughs> if that makes sense. He's still, I think God, what I want to tell you is God's, like, graciously stepping him um, through this process. Uh, and I really think this story is mostly about Peter's transformation. I think what we see here is, like, Peter moving from this, like, lawful-mindedness to a um, a focus on Jesus and the gospel that is opening a door for the gospel to be shared with Gentile people. Um, so let's continue on in verse 23. It says, The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should call no uh, sorry, should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And I asked then why you sent for me. Um, and actually, we're not going to see how this resolves till next week, so uh, just uh, a little plug to come back and 
figure out how the story resolves. Um, but we do see some things. So like more of the centurion man being humble, seeking out who the Lord is. Uh, Peter, very much in a good way, not wanting to be worshipped by Cornelius, um, not diminishing him or making him lesser. Uh, but this centurion still needs assistance. He's done all these like devote God-seeking practices, but something to notice, he still doesn't know who Jesus is. He still doesn't know the gospel. Um, but I think what we can really see is Peter has gone like all the way to embracing <laughs> Gentile people. Um, he'll make like I guess a further step next week, but um, he's now like in this guy Cornelius, who could be feared and hated, house. He's eating what's set before him. He's like, he's like deeply, deeply associated now. So Peter's been transformed. He seems to get that he's to call no people unclean. Um, we don't really know what's going on exactly in his head, but it ends with him extending in some way, this like fellowship of the Christian church to Gentile people. There's like a breaking of the ethnic prejudice going on. Um, so what should we take away? I think there's a few like takeaways. We'll start with the most obvious one, which is that we are to call no people unclean or unholy or unworthy. Um, I think we all have seen this happen around us with like ethnic, biases and have some bad history of it in the U.S. Um, I also think, though, it would be good to take a moment and reflect what are the things that we are tempted to, like Peter, add on top of the gospel, um, to think we need to make ourselves clean or acceptable or set apart before God that aren't centered around, like, Jesus and who he is. Or maybe another way to think about it is, what are things that if we like saw in another group, we're like, oh, we couldn't have fellowship with them. Not Jesus things, but what are the things that you're like? What I can't associate with those people or we as Ridgetop Church shouldn't associate with that group or align ourselves with whatever that is. Um, maybe even in a more radical form say, oh no, they, they're not really Christians. Like they believe in Jesus. They've submitted to him, but because of this thing, they're not really Christians. Um, I think like in this passage, what we'll see is that will absolutely prevent God's church from sharing the gospel to all nations. Um, just like it would have prevented Peter. So some of the things I thought of, um, one is like socioeconomic background. Uh, is it really easy to welcome like a homeless person into your home or into this church? Or is that something that's gonna we like want to in some way like separate ourselves from? Uh, another one would be like religious background. There's a lot of Muslim hate in the world today. So, how would we respond to the church if like a Muslim person showed up at, to church on Sunday? Maybe I feel like one I've seen a lot at UT's pretty political uh, is the political background. Uh, I've had people straight up say that. They thought that if you weren't a conservative, you did not deserve to call yourself a Christian. Do you see the kind of like some of the parallels between ethnicity and they're saying you don't just being saved by Jesus isn't enough. You also have to be something else. Um, maybe denomination. I've had a lot of I work with students and there's been a lot of confusion saying like Catholics aren't Christians. 
Um, we know that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, some Christian culture stuff, like, are you really a Christian if you don't pray every day or read your Bible every day? Hopefully y'all are getting a feel. Um, there's a, a story that comes to mind, especially in like the missions world. I read in a book called People Movements in the Punjab, which is like a section of North India, South Pakistan. Um, and there were missionaries that went there, and for a long time they were having stri- like troubles getting traction. Um, and would have people that followed Jesus, and when they said they wanted to follow Jesus, they would take them to the like kind of end of their camp and would start teaching them and teaching them Bible and trying to like get them some rigor to get them strong. Um, but in doing that would withhold them from getting baptized. Um, it was like the policy of their missions like group that they had to go through this class and then they could get baptized. Um, and the missionaries as they're struggling and praying for the people realized a lot of the stories we've read so far like Philip and the eunuch and uh, all these people that are somehow baptized immediately and they had to deal with, are we going to break away from the rules of our mission organization, our traditions, and baptize people immediately? Because that seems like what the Holy Spirit was telling them. Um, and it was like a hard decision that they struggled with and talked to other people. Um, and eventually decided that that was where the Holy Spirit was leading them. And so started to, when people believed, baptize them in their community immediately. And the population of Christians exploded. Like, I think it was like 10 to 20 times the amount started following Jesus. And of those, most continued in the faith where that wasn't their trend before. Um, But even then, there was like a, hopefully I was saying there was like a gospel plus mentality. Like, I need to like add a a rule or something on top. Um, So I think, I mean, those are some off the top of my head. I think it would be good for all of us to spend some time thinking what what are the other things we think we need to do to somehow like appease God or be clean before God? Um, are we looking to Jesus in those moments or are we trying to like work really hard not to sin in some way? Uh, does that make sense? Okay, cool. Uh, point number two, and this is kind of an aside. I have done a lot of like work or I guess ministry with people from other nations. And I just saw so many practices here that align with the experiences, things I've learned. I think I might have also put them on a slide. Sorry to be jumping around, people in the back. Um, One of those is we see that like both Peter and Cornelius were praying and praying in a way that they could hear from God. Um, I have seen that this is like the cornerstone of missions everywhere. (laughs) that when people are actually like really seeking the Lord, he directs them towards people in situations where his kingdom will be spread. Um, I've come across people in places where they don't encourage people that don't follow Jesus to pray. I think there's a great example here that we should encourage people who don't follow Jesus to pray and seek God. Um, I think we also see that there's a like a norm here for how the Holy Spirit works and speaks that he draws, he's not like just speaking to one person in one situation, but he's speaking to multiple people and making it line up. Um, another one is they obey immediately. Cornelius, Peter kind of does too, because people show up at his door. Um, and I guess I won't explain, but just trust me, it's a good thing. Um, in Luke 10, they talk about this like 
person called a person of peace that is talked about in a lot of like mission circles. And it's a person that accepts you and accepts your message and is peaceful. Um, and there's like instruction, just eat whatever take, like eat whatever is put before you, stay with that person. Um, I think we see some of that reflected here that when like Peter goes to Cornelius, he stays with him. Um, Cornelius seems to hit all of the markers of that like person to look for. Um, I think the biggest one out of this list is the importance of showing hospitality, of having people in your home eating meals. Um, I know it's like seen as a spiritual gift, but I've just seen it's one of the greatest ways the kingdom of God moves forward. Um, and I think the last thing to note is, you know, God sent an angel and a vision to Cornelius, but he used a person to preach the gospel to them. And it seems to be God's way to send people and preachers to preach the gospel. Um, so I think we also need to be in that mindset of looking to be sent to people, to places. Um, yeah, and then the, I mean, the last point I had is, after all this, what do you, like, how do we deal with these Old Testament laws? Um, the things about tattoos, foods, being set apart. Um, we know from other places in the Bible, Jesus says things like, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to, to, to fulfill the law. Um, in Second Timothy, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuke, for training in righteousness. So we don't want to just like toss these things out and say, you know, they're like, they don't apply, they don't give us wisdom anymore. Um, but we also don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that we can be clean or holy because of our like strict adherence to laws. Um, so I think we get some insight uh, in a story that very much aligns with this in Mark 7, um, where, so Jesus' disciples are, they're eating food with unwashed hands, and that is against the Jewish tradition. From what I understand, not Bible law, but like Jewish tradition. So much that Jesus says to them and accuses them, saying, Let, you're letting go of the commandments of God and holding on to human traditions. Um, but then he continues, um, and I think we'll pick up in 18. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, 18. It says, are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Uh, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Uh, from it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, greed malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Um, so we, we see even here how Jesus is taking this old law. And for all that were here, when we were going through Matthew 5 through 7, we heard a lot of Jesus saying, like, these are things you've been told in the past, and here's what I say, and pointing to a deeper truth or meaning that has to do with Jesus. And see that happen again here with one of these older laws. Um, I think it's easy to follow actions and restraints, like do this, don't do this. Um, and in some way, it even like seems spiritual, but it's a harder thing to accept that you defile yourself here constantly. 
that evil thoughts, words, actions come out of your mouth and you need a savior. I'm pretty sure that by the standard, I've probably defiled myself plenty while I've been up here talking to y'all. Um, in some odd way, we're kind of like unified here even in that we're all defiled. We've all had evil thoughts and done um, things that have come out of our heart that make us unclean. Um, but we also learned from this that God shows no partiality. Man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Greek, rich, poor. But in every nation where people fear him and call upon his name, they'll be saved. No one's spurned because of um, like race or ethnic origin or culture or physical traits. Um, but God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness when he died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. Uh, so these laws can't be used against us to judge or accuse us anymore. Um, Colossians says that we should therefore not let anyone judge you by the way you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So I think what I want you all to take away is that, especially like, like that word shadow, um, that the laws are meant to somehow like show us or draw us into re a reality that's found in Jesus. So a quick question to ask whenever you come across one of those things as you're reading the Old Testament is just asking, what, is this, what does this have to do with Jesus? Um, when you come across sacrifices or washings or symbols saying, how do I connect this with Jesus? Um, I think I have a picture here too. Uh, I think it was just helpful for me to like actually see what a shadow and a real thing are. When you look at this, you're like, what does this shadow tell me? And you get some stuff like, I can probably see about how wide the trunk is. You can see that it doesn't look like it's alive, like it looks like it's dead. But it's, it's not actually the tree. Like you can't push on it, you can't feel it. Um, another way it would be like think of a car. There's a shadow on the ground, but you can't get in the shadow and drive anywhere. Um, so I think it's important for us to see that these like laws, things about food, things about ritual, sacrifice, they are shadows that we're supposed to find a reality in Christ. Um, and what we really saw here is one, we do have a freedom to eat anything um, that we've been made clean and holy because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection uh, so that we can associate with anyone. We can have, like Jesus did, sinners and tax collectors and people from foreign nations in our home and eat meals and not have to worry about our standing before God. Uh, but it's extend instead the grace of the gospel to the nations and to the people around us. Um, in some way, we are reminded of this when we come to the table and take communion. Um, reunited, anyone can come and take bread and wine juice and take it together. It's a reminder that we are one in Christ. Um, something we do uh, want to emphasize is that there, this is a, like a declaration of Jesus' death and that he will one day return and an identity of being like submitted to Jesus. 
So we ask that uh, you only take the bread and cup if you are um, like submitted to following Jesus. Um, but on the night that Jesus was betrayed, yeah, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Uh, take this in remembrance of me. And on the same day, uh, after they were done with supper, he took the wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Uh, take it in remember, remembrance of me. Um, so let's take the bread and cup. 